We're all born. We're all going to die. So what happens with the time in between? How do we spend that time in between? That is what we are going to be talking about today as we explore Chapter 4, Human Development. Chapter 4, Human Development, is broken down into three distinct parts, or at least we're going to break it down into three distinct parts. The first part is going to be all about infancy, really the first couple years of life. The second part is going to be all about adolescent years, those years of turmoil. And then the third part is going to be all about um, adulthood and particularly focusing on later adulthood. Now, within these three distinct time periods, we're going to talk about three um, areas of development. So we're going to talk about our physical development, we're going to talk about our cognitive development, and we're going to talk about our emotional development and how these areas really change as we grow and as we um, go through life and experience new things. So let's start by tackling the prenatal and infancy time period. So where do we come from? Well, we come from a sperm and an egg. We are all um, human beings are made up of 46 chromosomes or 23 pairs of chromosomes, 23 chromosomes theoretically that come from the egg and 23 chromosomes that come theoretically from the sperm. That is typical development. Once the egg and the sperm come together, then it is termed to be in the germinal period and the um, new cell that is formed from the uh, combining of the sperm and the egg is called a zygote. The zygote is now a complete cell that goes through its final stage of mitosis, which is rapid cellular reproduction, uh, replication and division, replication and division to create all the things that it will need. After that first two-week period, it is then um, called an embryo and it enters into the embryonic period. During the embryonic period from about weeks two to weeks eight or two weeks to eight weeks after conception, um, what will happen is it will form embryonic uh, stem cells and these embryonic stem cells will create everything that we currently have. So the embryonic stem cells will create cells that will be the brain, that will be your skin, that will be your hair. It will be all of your internal organs like your intestines and your circulatory system like your heart, your lungs, your veins. And then, and all of these organs will start to form during this time period. Um, the embryo's heart will start beating on its own somewhere around five or six weeks of conception, um, which is generally about um, three to four weeks after a woman actually misses her period and knows that she's pregnant. And so all of these organs will be in place at the end of that eight week time period. And then from eight weeks until birth, it will be called a fetus. And this will be the fetal time period. And during this time period, all of those organs that were developed and created during the embryonic period are now going to grow and mature. And the predominant um, function during the fetal period is to allow all of these organs to mature and for the baby to grow as far as length and weight and accumulation of fat cells before birth. So there's lots of great pictures in your textbook, and I encourage you to kind of read about them. 
Now, the interesting thing is that um, there are lots of, and if you take my 241, here's a shameless plug for my 241 class, which is developmental psychology. We go into a lot of the, not only genetic impacts, so the genes that you may have inherited from your mom that your mom didn't even know she had, but also the environmental impacts or teratogens. Teratogens are just that. They're environmental substances that can um, harm the baby during development. Now, depending on when the mother comes in contact with certain teratogens will depend on what kind of impact it has. For example, if the mother is using a prescription drug called thalidomide and the mother is using this drug during the embryonic period when the baby is developing all of their organs and all of the bone structure, um, it is very likely that the baby will have gross birth defects, meaning that they would um, be missing fingers or toes or potentially even missing an arm or a leg. That is because the drug thalidomide will have, an, have its greatest impact during that embryonic period. If the mother starts taking the drug thalidomide later in pregnancy, potentially during the fetal period or in the late stages of the fetal period, it will have a far less impact on the baby. Now, street drugs or recreational drugs such as cocaine, heroin, and marijuana, um, again, will have an impact depending on when the mother is using these drugs. So use of these drugs during the fetal period which is eight weeks until birth, will have a large impact on the neurological and circulatory systems of infants. And so um, neurological is their brain growth and development. And so using drugs like cocaine or marijuana or even alcohol will impact the development of the brain, the connection of those neurons, the actual formation of the folds in the brain, and potentially leading to smaller brains. Women who abuse alcohol, fetal alcohol syndrome, still impacts uh, one out of every 250 babies born in the United States. And so fetal alcohol syndrome is still a huge um, issue for infants. And so mothers who drink early on in their pregnancy during the germinal and embryonic period, they can um, cause birth defects as far as physical birth defects for their babies, meaning that they may have characteristic features such as a flattened face, um, enlarged ears, a wide, um, wide space between the eyes, um, flattened bridge of the nose of an infant. Uh, those are all some characteristic facial features of mothers who abused alcohol early in pregnancy. If a mother continues to abuse alcohol throughout her pregnancy or into the fetal period, at that point in time, you could also see neurological impacts, meaning um, mental retardation um, or developmental, cognitive developmental delays that will impact the baby um, as they grow. And so there's all kinds of pictures in your textbook. I encourage you to take a look at those. Um, there's also um, other things like infections. Um, again, if the mother develops something like rubella or syphilis, um, depending on when the mother has an active case of this will depend during which stage. It will depend on the impact that it will have on that fetus.
All right, so once the baby is born, the baby is going to go through a huge period of physical development. We will grow more in the first two years of life than we will grow physically any other time in our life. And so um, that's really kind of the major accomplishment during our first two years is all of this physical growth. Now, babies are born with some reflexes. These are uh, inborn reflexes. And these reflexes really kind of aid in survival. They're things like rooting and sucking and the gasping reflex. There are some other reflexes that are um, innate, but they are not survival reflexes. Um, now, some of those initial reflexes, like the rooting reflex, rooting reflexes when you rub um, the or brush up the cheek of a side of a the cheek of a infant, they will turn their head and open their mouth uh, in an effort to um, find nourishment or find a breast or find a bottle. So most of the approaches to human development are the dynamic systems approach or kind of taking into consideration that um, growth and development takes place in an interaction between not only biology, not only the genetics that um, the baby is born with, but also the environment, that nurture aspect that is going to help um, provide some feedback and growth for the baby, in addition to some cultural aspects. So when we look at our senses, our senses are, um, babies are born with all their five senses. We talked about sensations just recently and perception. So their eyes, their ears, their taste, their touch, and their smell, they have all of these in place when they're born. Now, infants, um, their taste buds are typically culturally based. They do prefer sweet taste over other things, but babies, um, that will develop over time. When they're born, their most heightened sense of vision, or their most heightened sense is hearing. They hear the best when they're first, well, they hear when they're in utero. Um, babies can hear things in during their fetal period. And so when they're born, their most heightened sense is their hearing. They're able to recognize their mother's voice within just a few hours after birth. Um, their least developed sense is vision. Babies are very farsighted when they're born, and they can only see deeply contrasting colors. Everything is very fuzzy because a lot of that depends on muscle development in order to focus their eyes. So they're going to go through a tremendous period of physical growth and development. Let's switch and look at their cognitive development because their cognitive development is really intertwined with their um, physical development. Um, the Piaget, Jean Piaget, was the one was one of the first psychologists to propose a theory on cognitive development, and what Piaget proposed is that children and infants go through a series of stages. And so the first stage that infants are going to go through is the sensory motor stage. And this sensory motor stage is looking at how, um, it really defines how infants learn. Because that's what Piaget was interested in. And Piaget believed that infants and adults and children and um, everybody in the world, when we encounter something new, 
we try to assimilate it with what we already know. So take, for example, what you're learning in psychology class. Hopefully you're relating it to your life and you're trying to assimilate it with something that you already know. Now, if it doesn't fit with something that you already know, then what we have to do is we have to accommodate or we have to kind of change what we think or how we think about that, make a new category for it in essence so that we can think about it a little bit differently. So for example, you may have thought before you started psychology class that psychology class was going to be talking about a lot of abnormalities. However, we have yet to talk about abnormalities in this class. And so you may have had to accommodate your belief about what psychology is because it didn't assimilate with what you already knew. So what you already knew about psychology was maybe about depression and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. And so now you're having to accommodate your impression of what psychology is to kind of fit with something new. Psychology is a lot of different things. Psychology is about learning and developing. It's about how people interact. And so now you have to come up with a new idea or a new definition or a new category for what psychology is. So that is how we all, the basic steps of, of growth and development and learning any new item. So for children from birth to two years, Piaget's first stage is the sensory motor stage. And this is because, as we mentioned, babies, when they're born, they have all five senses. And how they take in information is through their senses, through their taste, through their hearing, through their sight, through their touch. And then as they're taking in this information and as they're physically growing, they are going to learn new motor skills. They're going to learn how to interact with the world by developing the muscles in their arms to move their arms, by developing the muscles in their legs to move their legs, to crawl, to roll, to move about the world. And so that's why he termed the first stage sensory motor, as they use their senses and their motor skills to come to understand the world. Now, one of their first goals in cognitive development for infants is the understanding of object permanence. Object permanence is understanding that things exist even when you don't see them. Now, I know for the vast majority of you, when you hear that, you may say, oh, duh. Like, of course things exist even though I don't see them. But for a baby, and when we think like a baby, uh, as a baby, they don't understand that things don't continue to exist when they don't see them. So if you take something out of the baby's sight, it's gone forever. It doesn't continue to exist for them. And a lot of that has to do with their brain development. Everything that they come in contact with is a new experience. And so as they start to um, be able to move about in their world, they're going to start to understand object permanence and understand that things can still exist or still be there even though an infant can't see them. And if you want to test this out, go hang out with some babies, some infants, five, six, seven months of age. If you take something away, you move a toy out of their sight, they'll be fine with that. They'll move on and start playing with something else. It is totally forgotten in their world. Another example or an example of object permanence is playing peekaboo. Peekaboo is incredibly funny to a baby because they actually think that when you put your hands in front of your face, you disappear. You no longer are there. And so you are disappearing and reappearing. And they think that is really funny. It also has to do with the fact that babies have no depth perception. 
they, when they're born, they don't, their vision is very poor. It develops over time, but their depth perception really doesn't develop until they're about six or seven months old. And so everything in their world is legitimately flat Stanley. And so when you put your hands in front of your face and you play peekaboo with a baby, they actually, all they can see are your hands and they think the rest of you has disappeared. Now, you can tell that they have learned the concept of object permanence because they, when you start to play peekaboo with you or with them, they will reach and pull your hands down away from your face and now they have learned the concept of object permanence. Another example of when they learn the concept of object permanence is when you hide a toy they will go and look for that toy. Now they have learned that things continue to exist even though you can't see them. The next cognitive stage that children will go through is the pre-operational stage. This is from ages two to seven. And so from ages two to seven, children start to think symbolically about objects. So things in their world come to represent something, meaning that their backpack, if they take their backpack to preschool with them every day, that is a symbolic representation of going to preschool. So if you pack their backpack on a Saturday with lunch and you're going to take them to the park or take them on a picnic all day long they're going to be asking when they're going to preschool because that backpack has come to represent that they're going to school or going to preschool. Some other things they um, are unable to think logically and there's a couple of reasons that they can't think logically. One is centration. Centration is that they focus on one aspect. They, so if you're telling a story, for example, I was telling, um, I had some girls over and they were all watching the, the um, Disney show Tangled and there was one girl who became very, very focused and that's that concept of centration. They became very focused on the fact that Tangled didn't have any shoes. And so she missed the entire movie because throughout the entire movie, she kept asking, why doesn't she have shoes? When is she going to go get shoes? Why did she leave her house without shoes? Who leaves their house without shoes? And so that's the concept of centration. They become very focused on one aspect. And oftentimes what they are focusing on are those physical attributes things that you can see. And so that's why they cannot think logically. They also are very egocentric. And egocentric means thinking about themselves. And it's not that they're selfish little creatures. It's just that they have just learned how to think. So now they can't think about how other people think. They can only understand how they think. And so everything is from their perspective and they get very frustrated when you don't understand what they're talking about because in their head it's very clear. At this time period, they also need to, they won't understand the law of conservation. And the law of conservation is that things can have the same amount, even though they have a different size or shape. And this is instrumental for kids during this time period between the ages of two and seven, because if you give two kids during this time period, um, a bowl of M&Ms, and if it has the same amount of M&Ms in the bowl, if one bowl is bigger than the other one, the kids will say that that kid has more M&Ms just because, again, they're focused on that appearance and they haven't learned that you can have the same amount of M&Ms in two different size bowls and they'd be the same even though the bowl is different size. Um, 
I have posted a video and there's lots of examples of this in the video where kids are not able to understand um, the law of conservation. So uh, one more stage, we'll round out our childhood years here. The next stage for Piaget's cognitive development is concrete operational stage. During this stage, everything is very concrete. And this is from about seven to 12 years of age. Um, and so kids can, they understand by this time, they understand the law of conservation, but everything that um, their logic and their logical thinking is based on concrete application. So things that they can touch and that they can see and feel and understand. Um, I will post a video also about um, children during this stage. During this stage, they can't think abstractly. They can only think about things that they can see and touch and feel. For example, there's a question in one of the videos that's posed to children during this concrete operational stage, and they ask, what would change about the world if we didn't have, if humans didn't have thumbs? And they give very concrete answers, like you can't thumb wrestle anymore. You can't give a person a thumbs up. And while these are factual answers, they're all based on concrete things that they can touch and see, and they actually use their fingers when they're giving the example. And so that's the concrete operational stage. All right, we are going to um, now switch and talk about emotional development that occurs early on in life um, or emotional development in childhood and infancy. So um, emotional development is also very much tied to our physical development and our cognitive development. But our emotional development, our emotional development really helps our cognitive development um, we have found through research with um, children who have been deprived of emotional and social contact that their brains develop slower and that their brains are actually smaller in size. The longer that they're exposed to neglect or deprived of emotional and social development, um, the more permanent these changes in the brain will happen or will occur. So the first one that we're going to talk about is attachment. And attachment, when we talk about attachment, we're talking about an emotional bond. And during the 50s, um, they believed that babies developed attachment to their primary caregiver because their primary caregiver provided them with nutrients. However, Harry Harlow, what Harry Harlow did was he took monkeys and he separated them from their mother monkeys. And then he gave them a uh, imitation mon mother monkey that he created. One was a wire looking monkey or a wire looking mother with a very robotic face. But this mother monkey that he had created had the nutrients. It had the bottle that would nourish the baby monkey. Then he created another mother monkey that was warm and heated and covered in a cloth material that was very similar to a real mother monkey. And it had a very mother monkey looking face, but this monkey mother had no nourishment. And so then they studied how long did that monkey spend on each one of them. And they found that the monkey spent an overwhelming amount of time on the cloth mother monkey, the one that resembled their real mother monkey. 
and not a lot of time on the monkey that provided nutrients. So they found support that emotional attachment is alive and well among monkeys and among humans. Mary Ainsworth took this and created the strange situation in which she could test um, attachment and found that there was three styles of attachment among children. And so she was testing um, humans, and I've posted the video that goes with Mary Ainsworth, uh, her experiment. And what she found in her experiment was that there's three attachment styles. There's a securely attached child, there's an avoidant attached child, and then there's an ambivalent attached child. And so a securely attached child is one who will cry when their mother leaves or when their primary caregiver leaves and show some distress, but then when their mother comes back or their primary caregiver returns, they'll be easily comforted and easily calmed down and they'll relax very quickly. This shows that they've developed a secure emotional attachment. They've developed that emotional bond between the primary caregiver and the infant. An avoidant attached child is one who doesn't cry. So when the caregiver leaves the room, the baby doesn't cry or become upset. When the caregiver returns to the room, the baby really doesn't notice or doesn't really care um, and kind of avoids the caregiver when she returns to the room. Um, this infant uh, is said to develop an avoidant attachment and so they've kind of avoided forming that emotional attachment with the mother or the primary caregiver. The last one is the ambivalent attachment. And with this baby, um, they kind of create an inconsistent um, emotional reaction. And so when the mother leaves or the primary caregiver leaves, this baby is almost inconsolable, will cry and cry and cry. And then when the mother returns, the child will also um, seek but reject the primary caregiver. So these babies are going to be uh, difficult for even the primary caregiver to console or comfort when they return. The baby will cry and oftentimes push the mother away or try and reject the mother, but then want to be comforted by the mother as well. Now, what is the long-term importance of attachment? There has been some correlational research that indicates this is our first form of relationship that we have in the world and that this relationship will mimic how we form relationships later on in life as adults. So securely attached children will oftentimes have many secure adult relationships. They'll form relationships easily and have no issues with it. Um, avoidant attached infants as adults may have um, a less easy time forming relationships or close relationships. It will take them a longer time to form close relationships, they may be a little bit more skeptical of um, other individuals and forming relationships or divulging information to them. And then ambivalent children as adults, they may have a more difficult time regulating their emotions. And so they too may be a little bit inconsistent in their relationships and how they react in relationships as adults. So now we're going to move on to um, adolescence. Um, as we look at adolescence and um, how we grow and change in adolescence, um, this is a time from about 11 to 14 years of age. 
And it can or adolescence starts around 11 to 14 years of age and goes until about 18 to 21 years of age. Now, there is some physical changes that are going to accompany adolescence. And of course, the most uh, prevalent physical change is going to be that of puberty. Puberty is when um, the body is physically changing from a um, childlike body into an adult-like body. Of course, the main hallmark is that we become reproductive individuals uh, with puberty. And so um, there are secondary sex characteristics and primary sex characteristics. Primary sex characteristics are not something that we notice or that we see. Our primary sex characteristics uh, relate to our reproductive organs and our reproductive genitalia. So for females, this is going to be your ovaries and your uterus and vagina. And then for males, this is going to be your um, testicles and your penis and, of course, um, the growth of the testicles and the development of the gonads. Um, and so those primary sex characteristics are going to start to change. And because the growth and development that these primary sex characteristics go through, they're going to start producing hormones that will cause our secondary sex characteristics or the physical changes that we notice during puberty, but are not directly related to reproduction. So the things like um, for guys, their voices are going to get deeper, the growth of their Adam's apple, the broadening of their chest, the development of muscles. And then for girls, their secondary sex characteristics are going to be the development of their breasts, the widening of their hips, um, the growth of hair in their axillary and um, genital areas. Those are all going to be secondary sex characteristics. These secondary sex characteristics, because they're much more outward signs, are typically what we use to identify that a person is in puberty. There's also a lot of brain changes that occur, and these brain changes, as the growth of the brain occurs, these brain changes are going to contribute largely to the cognitive changes and then emotional changes that are going to occur in adolescence. Um, and so the cognitive period that Piaget um, highlighted for adolescence is formal operational thought. With formal operational thought, now, because their brains have grown so much, adolescents can actually start to think um, theoretically, abstractly, and hypothetically. So they can come up with a whole lot of hypotheticals that may or may not be actual or reality, but they can entertain these because they can think abstractly now. And so that's going to actually contribute to some of their emotional growth that is also going to happen um, during adolescence. Um, so Eric Erickson outlined eight stages of psychosocial development. And so Erickson believed that we go through a series of crises throughout life. In infancy, there's a series of crises like trust versus mistrust and autonomy versus shame and doubt and... Um, and um, several other stages as the children grow and develop emotionally. For adolescence, Erickson's time period was identity versus role confusion. And with identity versus role confusion, this is when adolescents really start to explore who they are. That hypothetical that they're able to experience and to think abstractly, um, which was what Piaget was talking about, 
now kind of becomes more of a reality. And so they can try out these different identities in adolescence and hopefully emerge with a sense of who they are, not necessarily what they're going to be, but a sense of who they are, that they're a good person, that they want to act morally, that they want to have respect for other human beings, those kinds of things. Um, if not, or Erickson believed that they would emerge with a sense of uh, role confusion and not really knowing um, who they are. In Table 4.1 in your textbook, it outlines all of Erickson's psychosocial development. As I mentioned, in infancy, there's trust versus mistrust. There's also autonomy versus shame and doubt. Autonomy is the toddler years when babies want to try and get away from their parents or their primary caregivers, and they think that's funny. And they should be allowed some sense of autonomy to be able to um, explore their world without getting in trouble. The next one is the next stage is initiative versus guilt, which corresponds with preschool years and children taking initiative for things in their life, being able to do things on their own. The next stage is identity or I'm sorry, industry versus inferiority, which is when children should um, be able to produce things in their world. This corresponds with education, with early um, education in the elementary school years. And so kids hopefully can develop a sense of um, being industrious or being able to do things and produce things in their own world. And then, of course, the next one for adolescence is identity versus role confusion that we just talked about. And then um, Erickson continued on and developed a, a theory for adulthood as well, that during adulthood, we the crisis we experience is um, intimacy versus isolation. And when we're talking about intimacy, we're not just talking about um, sexual partners or life mates, but we're talking about um, developing intimate relationships with friendships as well. That at this point in time in our life, our friendships should not just be based on, oh, we're in the same classes, so we're going to be best friends, but intimacy in that our friendships are a little bit deeper. We share things. Um, we become more attached or develop more um, personal interactions with other individuals. The next stage of Erickson's um, emotional and social development is generativity versus stagnation, which would be with middle adulthood. Hopefully adults would um, experience uh, a sense of generativity or that they're giving back to the world around them, that they're able to um, produce something for their uh, social, for their environment, and um, be able to be productive. Otherwise, they emerge with a sense of stagnation, which is probably what most of us would coin a midlife crisis because they're going to go back and try and re-identify themselves or reinvent themselves. And then the last stage in Erickson's um, emotional and social development is integrity versus despair. And this would correspond with adulthood or older adulthood, and that they would hopefully emerge with a sense of integrity, meaning that they've completed a lot of things off of their bucket list. They feel like they have produced and that they've lived a good long life, or else they're going to emerge with a sense of despair, meaning they didn't know how they got old so quickly, and they're really kind of upset by this. So that's another theory. And this um, theory, 
Erickson's theory on social emotional development, although it goes from birth until death, it really addresses some of the emotional and social changes that occur during adolescent years as these adolescents are going to change and grow um, emotionally and socially as well. As we enter into adulthood, we aren't going to experience nearly as many physical changes from the time once we start, um, actually a few years before you actually start puberty, typically about a year, year and a half before puberty, you're going to go through another rapid period of physical growth. And typically girls go through this period first, and then boys will go through it afterwards, mainly because boys start puberty a little bit later. And this can be witnessed in any middle school where you have girls that are really and truly about adult height or right around five, five and a half feet. And you have boys that may still be more of a pre-puberty height and boys may only be four foot tall at that point in time. So right before puberty, you're going to hit a massive growth spurt and you're really going to hit your adult height. Most girls will hit their adult height by the time they're 16. Most boys will hit their adult height and weight by the time they're 20, um, 18 to 20 time period. And so we really don't grow physically a whole lot after that. As a matter of fact, the most physical changes that we'll see in adulthood is when we'll start to see some declines. And so we'll actually reach our peak physical fitness as far as our height, our weight, and our strength when we're about 25. And then things will start to decline from there. Um, as we um, get into our mid fit, or I'm sorry, when we get into our mid 40s, You'll start to experience physical changes in your senses. Your eyes will start to change. Your hearing will start to decrease as well as your vision starting to decrease. You may experience hair loss. You may experience um, bone or muscle mass loss starting in your mid-40s. Um, and it will start to decline fairly steadily as we age. Um as we start to transition into older age, um, older age being anything over the age of 65, um, we'll start to experience some more physical changes. The book talks about um, some other physical changes that are hallmarks of adulthood, like marriage and having children. And these really start to accompany a lot of changes from an emotional standpoint as well. Um, as you age and you start to experience marriages and your friends start to experience marriages, your social bonds and those relationships that you formed maybe in college or in the years after college are really going to change as the demands of life and having children um, influence these as well. Once you have children, your emotional and social circles will again um, change and um, maybe you'll still stay in contact with some people from college or even from high school, but your focus and your emotional circles are going to change um, to kind of mimic the things that you're experiencing in life. Um, this is also true as you age into retirement. Um, retirement Older adults need to learn how to kind of um, reinvent and stay active. Um, otherwise, they'll experience a lot of despair as, again, their social circles and their emotional circles are going to change as they transition from the workplace to retirement or exploring their options in retirement. Um, one of the main hallmarks 
um, that we may experience from a physical change is dementia. Um, dementia is a severe impairment of our intellectual and memory. It also impacts personality changes. The most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, and about 3 to 5% of people will develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, they don't really know what causes Alzheimer's disease. There's a lot of theories. Um, we know that with, Alzheimer, with Alzheimer's disease, there are some hallmark traits in the brain that can be studied after a person dies. Um, and these are um, neurofibular tangles that occur on the neurons. So there's some um, buildup of plaque and then some tangles that intertangle those neurons and cause the neurons to die. Um, we know that repeated concussions um, contributes to chronic encephalitis um, or chronic traumatic encephalitis, which is repeated concussions cause swelling in the brain and can cause the onset of Alzheimer's or dementia much more quick quickly. So instead of seeing it in individuals who are 70, you can oftentimes see it in individuals who are 40 or even younger. Um, and so this contributes to personality changes. It also contributes to a lot of um, emotional and intellectual decreases as they age. Um, there is also a theory that Alzheimer's disease may be type 3 diabetes, meaning that um, poor diet or a diet that is high in um, processed foods and high in sugar um, may lead to um, the buildup of plaques in the on the neurons in the brain and may contribute to Alzheimer's disease. Um, however, these are all theories that are currently um, being investigated and researched. The last thing I want to talk about um, is moral development. And moral development is addressed in the textbook in the section on adolescence. However, um, it really kind of encompasses all three of these stages. And so Kohlberg, um, initially Kohlberg's theory mimicked Piaget's theory because Kohlberg believed that we had to have some cognitive development and awareness in order to be moral individuals. And so his three levels of moral reasoning are pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. And so even from a terminology standpoint, they kind of mimic Kohlberg's um, cognitive development stages. And so the pre-conventional level is really the earliest moral level. And this is when really and truly, and again, because um, Kohlberg believed that it mimicked Piaget's cognitive stages, the pre-conventional level would be reserved for children. And children act in uh, self-interest. And so they really, what Kohlberg believed was that they act morally because they're trying to avoid punishment or they're trying to... Um, get a reward. And so if you think about children, um, children, again, because they're egocentric and they can only think about themselves, they really don't want to, Kohlberg believe they really don't want to act morally. They don't want to share their toys. They don't want to hold the door, but they do so so that they can be rewarded so that the teacher can tell them, oh, what a good job you've done, or I'm going to give you a sticker when we get back, or, you know, you've done such a good job sharing. So they get praised and that praise is reward. And so this is the pre-conventional level. They also share their toys so that they don't get in trouble or they don't hit other people because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to have to sit in time out. And so it's really at a self-interest level. 
The next level is the conventional level, and this level is um, much more concrete. And so it's looking at societal laws and what is approve, what is approval and um, approved by other people. And so in the conventional, early in the conventional level, it's all about laws and that there has to be some laws and some rules in order to maintain society. As they start to move out of the conventional level or um, a little bit further in the conventional level, they acknowledge that it's really about approval of others. And so there may be laws that exist. For example, in my class, I always ask um, how many people would steal or how many people would kill somebody else. And most people don't want or most people would not steal or kill somebody else but then I say well how many of you speed and just about everybody's hand goes up well it's against the law to kill somebody it's against the law to steal it's also against the law to speed but we acknowledge that there's gray areas of our laws and that yes speeding is wrong but is it really hurting anybody? Um, and so that's usually the moral reasoning of the latter stages of conventional morality in that it's okay because everybody does it. We get approval from everybody else. And so it's really not that bad. Um, this is also the case. Uh, I point out when people go on social media and they say, I feel so good. I just paid somebody else's bills off. Well, do you really feel good or are you trying to get approval of everybody else by posting it on social media? The last stage of Kohlberg's moral development is post-conventional, and this is the highest level. And during this time period, um, it's based on... Um, abstract principles and the value of overall life. And so during this time period, the highest pinnacle is that they acknowledge that there's some higher being in charge. And so we act morally so that we can find favor or karma, whatever you want to call it, um, with this higher being. And so the value of all human life is really the pinnacle of this post-conventional uh, morality. Now, when Kohlberg actually studied his um, theory on moral development, he originally believed that we moved through these stages. And so by the time we made it to adulthood, we should all be in the post-conventional level. However, what he found is that the vast majority of us are not, and that throughout our day, we are um, confronted with a variety of moral situations in which we go back and forth between them. So, for example, um, during your day, you may be confronted with if you go to um, buy something at a store and you pay cash and they give you too much change back. In that situation, although you're an adult and you should be in the post-conventional morality, and you may say, oh, I have to go back and give them back their excess change because it's the right thing to do. A lot of people might say, oh, well, I'm not being punished. They're not really out a whole lot. It's not that big of a deal. And they may act more in a pre-conventional level or even in a conventional level from the standpoint of, oh, I didn't even notice. And, you know, like people do it all the time. It's okay kind of morality. Um, the same is true when we're confronted with speeding versus other things. And so really and truly throughout our day, we kind of go back and forth in our morality and how we judge things um, and what type of morality we apply in each situation. 
this rounds out our chapter on human development, again, I'll give a shameless plug. If you find this thing, if you find this chapter interesting, how we develop and grow, you should take Psychology 241, which is Lifespan Development, in which we go into detail talking about all of these things from birth to death. The next chapter that we're going to cover is Chapter 10, which is Sex, Gender, and Sexuality, and it will build upon this information, adding in some more biological aspects about how we grow and develop. Thank you, and I encourage everybody to think about your development. What kind of attachment do you think you had with your primary caregivers? What type of morality do you think you have? Are you able to think abstractly? And are you still stuck in identity versus role confusion? A lot of us are. A lot of us, even as adults, may be going backwards and experiencing identity versus role confusion currently. It's okay. As we grow and change, that is the continuum of human development.